This is Tim Sullivan, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author of Under New Management and Myths of Creativity and a recovering academic. And this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 725 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 725 to join our community and get the starter kit or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features my good friend, Tim Sullivan. You might remember Tim as one of the co-authors of the book, The Org, which was one of my favorite books that uses economics to explain all those crazy things about organizational life that we parody in movies like Office Space or The Office. Tim and his co-author Ray are actually back, this time covering economics as a whole. Their book, The Inner Lives of Markets, shows how the past 50 or more years of economic theory and research has affected not just organizations, but our everyday lives and markets, what we buy, how we interact, and how we lead. And Tim and I have a fascinating discussion about how have economics shaped our businesses and how do they shape our leadership. Now, a, a quick sort of um, behind the scenes thing. If it sounds like I'm in a, in a car or in a tin can or whatever it is, it's because I actually recorded this episode on vacation. Tim and I did the interview once uh, and the whole thing kind of messed up. And so I emailed him and said, Hey, I, you know, I'm on vacation, but I really want to get this episode out to people because your book just came out. Can we re-record it? And so I actually hid in a closet in the beach house that my family was vacationing on to record this and next week's episode. So if it sounds a little weird, please forgive me on that. The content is still great. The audio, audio quality is still clear. You just might wonder why do I sound like I'm in a closet? It's because I am. Anyway, without further ado, there's an amazing discussion about markets. Tim's new book, The Inner Lives of Markets. Let's get to our interview with Tim Sullivan. So, you know, first question. So who are you and what do you do? I am Tim Sullivan. I'm the editorial director of Harvard Business Review Press. I also work on Harvard Business Review, the magazine, and I'm part of the management team for the whole group. And I'm also the author, with Ray Fisman, of The Org and of the just-released Inner Lives of Markets. Now, if Tim sounds familiar to our listeners, that's because he obviously is familiar. This would be the third time I think you've been on, uh, twice talking about the ideas in, in The Org. And now we're talking about the ideas inside of the ideas inside of The Org, if that's appropriate to say. <laughs> Yes, I think that's entirely appropriate, although confusing. No, I okay, that's fair. So I guess my my first question is is really this. There's a lot of different economics has been extremely popular in the last 10 years, you know. Dubner and Levitt did a, a good rights with Freakonomics, but they were always looking at like oh the economics of uh, drug dealers and how it's like franchises or uh you know the the economics of crime or this or that. But what I think is interesting is this book comes at sort of popular economics from a total redefinition. It's, it's less about finding 
ways to apply economics to popular fields and is more about how economics sort of got popular and how it shaped us. Is, is that fair to say of sort of how it all developed or how, how do you see this book developing in your mind? What was the inspiration, et cetera? Yeah, that's actually a really good way of thinking about it is the book has this long gestation. It probably is more than 10 years ago that we started thinking about it. I actually, I was at the MIT Coop at the bookstore and I saw this book about physics, physics in the 20th century, and it reprinted all of the great papers from kind of Einstein on, which are all really short. They're like three pages long. And then it had, um, the, the author would explain why the papers were important, what the scientific breakthrough was, uh, the impact it had on the world, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought it would be really cool to do the same. Th I'm an economics nerd. So I thought it'd be really cool to do the same thing with economics. And so I, I talked to a bunch of economists about what they thought of kind of the classic greatest papers of the 20th century between like Paul Samuelson in the 1930s all the way up to theory papers in the 1990s. And the, the list was pretty consistent across the board. And when Ray and I were looking for a second book to do, I pulled out this list again and we started talking about it. And the thing that struck us is the way that those ideas went from really obscure papers in academic journals that were really core to the discipline of economics and how they they became applied to the world. They went from just describing the world in you know, the Levitt and Dubner stuff fits into that. It's descriptive of the world to these economic ideas actually shaping the way that we get the stuff that we want. And that's the phenomenon we wanted to explore. Yeah, and, and you see that throughout the different chapters in the book. You have that sort of modular style that I, I'm, I'm biased to because I sort of write in that same style yeah. too, where each chapter you're looking at a different uh, kind of idea. And really, I think what's interesting is you you show how the economics of uh, or these different economic theories shape kind of modern stuff, but you also show how some things we seem as modern aren't necessarily all that modern. Like, you, you know, you talk about the economics of platforms, which in an Uber and Airbnb world we're all sort of talking about, but the idea actually goes back, you know, a couple hundred years more than that, uh, and has been something that economists have been talking about for a while. Yeah, so the the economic theory, this is one place where economists looked at the world and said, they said, there's this weird business model phenomenon out there where you can actually, it's not this market that naturally springs into the world like just where people go to trade. It's shaped very carefully by the person who owns the platform. You know, by Amazon makes the rules of how Amazon operates. And they can craft the market and shape the market the way, the way they want it to be shaped. And the people who started exploring this not that long ago, like in, starting in the mid-90s, were looking at things like where credit cards came from from. And if we evaluate credit cards as a market, as a platform, rather than as a service, what does that tell us about how we should analyze what's going on there? Um, and actually, that kind of analysis ended up winning Jean Tirole, the Nobel Prize in economics, a couple years ago, at least uh, that was part of the work that won him the prize. But that demonstrated that what one of the things that economics is really good at is evaluating phenomena. Like, let's apply some strict rules to this so we can figure out what the plumbing is. And that's what's one of the things that's been remarkable about the revolution in, in markets and the way we get things over the past 25 years is we think about it as this technological revolution. You know, it's all about the Internet. It's about um, the web and HTML and apps and mobile. And it certainly is that. But it's also it's economics, economic theory that really provides the plumbing for those things that work. So a lot of those models have been around for a long time, like 
platforms, you can go back to 12th century France and identify um, these huge market fairs that essentially operated just like a platform, at least for a couple hundred years, uh, all the way through modern platforms like Amazon, Uber, eBay, etc. Yeah, well, and I kind of thought the same thing, too, when I was reading uh, the chapter on lemons. Of course, you know, I have, I have a chapter in Underneath Management around the idea of salary transparency and around right. trying to bring more more transparency into the market. But that's, you know, that seems like a new idea. But the concept of lemons in a market and ruining that whole thing goes back, you know, several decades further than that, starting, I think, with the car market, if I remember right. But I, I think if I remember from the book. They weren't actually wanting to talk about cars. Cars was just the way that they could get the paper published. And then the paper went on to sort of change all of this stuff anyway. Yeah, so it's an interesting story. that, And it goes back to this history of economic thought. So one of the challenges for economics around World War II was they wanted to generalize as much as humanly possible in the same way that physics could generalize very broadly. Right. So when um, John Clerk Maxwell wanted to write down the equations that described electromagnetism, he could do it in eight equations. And that was it. That's all you needed to understand electromagnetism. Um, it's this really, in mathematical terms, this parsimonious, beautiful way of understanding the world. And there was this drive starting around just before World War II to really start mathematizing economics. And so what happened in the 1950s was people wanted to show, to demonstrate that if you had all of those conditions that we know from economics, you know, perfect information um, where buyers and sellers know exactly the same thing uh, and all of those conditions that we think about around economic man, that you can demonstrate that the, that a market is going to get basically everybody the things that they want in such a way that you can't make anybody better off through trading. That's the general equilibrium model. I'm not describing it exactly right. Um, and so in the 1950s, Ken Arrow and Gerard de Bru were the first people to publish the proof of general equilibrium. Um, but once that was done, you could look at that model and say, and people have been saying this since the late 1950s, like there is no market like that. That does not describe a market. It describes these general markets. So then there's this wave of economic modeling that starts in the 60s where people were thinking like, well, what does it take to model a specific market? And along comes George Akerlof, who was... Um, he was at Harvard and then went to MIT, and he wanted to find a place where he could demonstrate that if people didn't have the same information that the market could completely unravel. He was really interested in phenomenon like unemployment, where um, you could look in the world and say, well, there are jobs and there are people who want the jobs, so why isn't there this, why isn't matching going on? Why, why, why does this market not clear in people and jobs? But he decided that what he would look at is actually the, the market for used cars. Uh, so it's called the market for lemons because a bad car is a lemon, good car is a cherry. Um, and what he shows is that let's say that you have a bunch of used cars in the marketplace and the people who own them know which ones are good and which ones are bad. So you know that you have a $10,000 used car and somebody comes along, but they're also you know, $5,000 used cars on the marketplace. But the buyer can't tell the difference between the two of those. So if you're a buyer and you're only willing to pay $5,000, then that means people who have a $10,000 used car are going to take it off the market because they're not going to sell it to you for $5,000. Um, 
But of course, they're also used, mar- used cars that are only worth $2,500. And so the people who have $5,000 used cars take them off the market. So you can follow that logic all the way down, where if you have a decent used product and people can't tell that it's actually good, then the market unravels until nobody's willing to sell anything. And it was this remarkable insight that like markets don't actually work the way they do in general equilibrium. They have these specific problems around things like information asymmetry that make them really hard to work out. Now, that was a really hard paper for Akerlof to publish. He got rejected because the insight was trivial. People thought it was ridiculous. One reviewer said, I can look out the window and I can see a market for used cars. Therefore, your theory doesn't hold, You know, which is kind of missing the point. It's simple, but not simplistic. It's actually this deep insight into the nature of markets. Um, he did eventually get it published in, I think, 1971. I might be getting the date wrong. And then that goes on to help him win the Nobel Prize later in his life. And it actually it, it helps bring to life this whole discipline of information economics where people are trying to figure out exactly how to model all of the different ways that markets can be imperfect, right? Because if you have a perfect market, you can only model it one way. It's perfect. But if every, if every market is a little bit imperfect, that means, you know, there are kind of infinite ways that you can start modeling them. So this, it led to this revolution in economics that's also reflected in the businesses that then spring up to try to solve information asymmetries, which we interact with every day, like Amazon and eBay, um, even places like Facebook and LinkedIn that now have economics groups. And part of the job of a place like eBay or an economics team at eBay is to erase information asymmetries. Yeah, I was, was going to say that you, you, know, you, can, you can look out the window and see that used cars are selling, but you can also look out the window and see information asymmetry is a problem in so many different areas of our life. Right. Absolutely. So, and, and I think the other thing, too, is you, you can kind of see how as a whole. So you see this idea, then the problem of information asymmetry, how that spills over. And then what I think is interesting is how uh, the different economic theories kind of show how markets shape us. To some extent, this tangents with behavioral economics, which is really just psychology. Um, it's just that psychology doesn't have a Nobel Prize. But again, we see that attempt to explain like we, we it was easy to figure out what a perfect market looks like. And so now for the past sort of 50 years, we've been experimenting with, well, how do we explain the imperfections in our market uh, and what we should do about them? And I've always thought that's kind of one of the really interesting elements is how different markets kind of shape us because we're not rational. So they have kind of a different effect than perfect equilibrium would say that they have. Right. Well, there's nothing in general equilibrium theory that says anything about how people behave. They just just, uh, pursue their self-interest, right? Kind of that Adam Smith idea. Um, that if everybody pursues their own self-interest, then it actually produces um, kind of, I want to say, the best of all possible worlds, but everybody gets the stuff they want. And that's a beautiful theory, and it works under a lot of circumstances. But there are these interesting things where um, in intensely uh, competitive situations, intensely competitive situations can drive out good behavior. So... What's an example of that? Think about the building collapses in Bangladesh, right? Where if you're trying to eke out as much as as much margin as you possibly can um, in a highly competitive market, like making T-shirts for fast fashion outlets, um, your natural inclination or, or the inclination to get the most margin is to cut as many corners as you possibly can, which can lead to disaster. And that, that operates under a bunch of different circumstances. And then there are things like framing effects where... I'm sure most of your listeners know the prisoner's dilemma, 
Uh, so I don't need to go through a whole explanation of how it works. If they don't, I'm sure they've seen The Dark Knight. So you know, <laughs> yes. same, same thing. Right, The Dark Knight, or on the high end, The Spanish Prisoner, the David Mamet, Steve Martin movie, which is also great. Are you, are, you, uh, are you suggesting that Christopher Nolan films, in particular amazing scenes like the dual taxi boats, uh, are not on the high end? <laughs> not at all. I was just offering another example. Uh, okay. Just, they, I, mean, I'm, I mean, if we were talking about Adam West Batman, maybe, but come on. Oh, no, that's, that's high art. <laughs> I, I, I think of the spirit economics who would say de gustibus nonus disputandum right there's no accounting for taste um so but if you frame the prisoner's dilemma game there was a i uh, i can't think of the psychologist berkeley psychologist who ran this experiment and he said if you run the prisoner's dilemma game dilemma game as the community game people don't defect right they work together at a surprisingly high rate all you have to do is call it the community game and then your assumptions about how the game ought to work completely changes if you call it the wall street game then people defect. They want to screw the other person, and they want to screw the other person because they don't trust the other person. Right? And that's you could say that has more to do with Wall Street than markets, but there's the certain logic that, you know, the logic of Wall Street is one of purely of trying to get the thing that you want, to maximize your utility, to get the most money out of this. And it has a dramatic effect on the way we perceive how those markets operate and how we perceive markets, period. So that, that sort of begs an interesting question, though. So if I'm thinking about, you know, this whole book and markets and economics, et cetera, as a, as a leader, there is definitely a case to be made to understanding how markets work from the financial side. But then you also, it seems like you don't want to lean too much towards just making decisions based entirely on economics because it kind of takes away from some of the humanity that we need in order to kind of still be an organization of real humans. Yeah, I, that, and that is the larger point of the book is we are now... I don't know if inundated is the right verb, but we can go with it. We're, we're surrounded by and operate continuously in variations in markets. We all carry around little platform markets in our pockets and our smartphones. We all buy stuff online all the time. Um, school assignments are made by matching algorithms that were developed by economists. Uh, medical residencies are the same way. Uh, clerkships operate the same way. Uh, kidney donations uh, are subject to the same rules. And on the one hand, oftentimes, like the efficiency that thinking about something with market logic is that it brings is amazing. So, Ray and I tell a story of um, the transformation of American food banking through the introduction of market like mechanisms. You know, it dramatically improved the amount of food that poor people got. End of story. It was just better. It was more efficient. People got more of the things they wanted and less of the things that they didn't want. And more people went less hungry because of that innovation. At the same time, um, we can't elevate efficiency to the ultimate goal all the time. It's a means to an end. And there are other ways that you have to get people's opinions and expression of preferences into the system. That's why, you know, democracy is messy, but it works. Anybody who's ever sat through like a church governance meeting where everybody gets to talk and everybody's opinion matters and they go on forever, like that doesn't feel very efficient. But on the other hand, it's accomplishing a goal that's maybe more important than pure efficiency. Um, so understanding where markets are, how they can be applied and where we want that efficiency and where they maybe ought not to be, I think is a really important uh, distinction. Mm. And 
you know, the, my opinion, I'm a little biased. One, the textbook to do that, the way to do that is this new book, The Inner Lives of Markets, how people shape them and how they shape us. You could grab an econ textbook, right? But you're going to learn a lot of like sort of esoteric theories. You could grab Freakonomics, but that's only really going to tell you about cheating and sumo wrestling, as entertaining as that is. <laughs> but if you want to actually figure out sort of as a leader, how do I use markets and how do I know when to not use markets? Inner Lives of Markets is a fantastic place to start. Tim, you know what's coming next because you've been on the show before, but it's not just two questions anymore. It's five questions. Are you ready five. for five questions we ask everybody? I'm ready to go. So the first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received, I'm going to go back to what my mother told me when I got married. Um, and she's never given me any more advice than this. She told me I shouldn't expect Wendy to stay the same. And she told my wife that she shouldn't expect me to change. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, I thought that was good. Yeah. What's an average day look like for you? I have such a variety of jobs at HBR that there's no good answer to that. I would say like an optimal day is a day when I get to wake up and run and write and avoid traffic and then get introduced to new ideas. That's, that's my favorite thing about my job is where I get to engage with people about new things and explore new ideas. Speaking of exploring new ideas, what are you reading right now? I am in the middle of reading um, The Cryptonomicon again, which is a, a ooh, how to describe it. it. It's kind of a techno thriller sci-fi book about cryptography um, written by Neil Stevenson. It's huge and long and complicated, and I really like it. And I'm also uh, just started Magic and Loss, which is Virginia Heffernan's book about, about the internet art. What do you believe that most people don't? Uh, that luck plays a disproportionate part in success. Hmm. Now that's interesting and, and worth kind of diving a bit more into. I always thought it was just hard work and effort, or is it that combination of hard work, effort, and luck? Well, look, I think you can define luck very broadly about our position in the world. Like, I'm super lucky that I was born to middle-class parents um, in a small town in Vermont, and that gave me a tremendous leg up over the vast majority of the world's population. It's not to say that I haven't worked hard and that um, I'm not smart, but there are also incredible series of breaks that we all get that oftentimes go unacknowledged. That's fair. So our, our final question, the, the name of the show is Radio Free Leader. In, in your view, what makes someone a leader? What makes someone a leader? I, I think it has a lot to do with vision and compassion that you're able to set and communicate a path forward for the people who are going to follow you. And that you're also understand, because I think that's the compassion as part of the communication process, kind of understanding where they are such that you can set a vision of the place where you're going in a way that convinces them. Hmm. That's pretty solid. And actually, to in a sense, to me, kind of explains sort of this point of the book, especially that compassion piece, you know, this idea that economics isn't this cold, hard science, right? It does definitely shape us and it can be that, but the impetus is on us as leaders to keep that, that compassion. That's a good, that's a good ending thought. And that's pretty good because we're at the end. Tim Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. David, I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Thanks for having me for the third time. 